Hello, I'm Neil Moody, editorial hairstylist, YouTuber, Instagrammer, Facebooker, interviewer, etc. And welcome to the second series of my In Bed with Neil Moody podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to be notified about all new episodes. In series one, I interviewed friends and work colleagues from the fashion and beauty industry who are entrepreneurial and also think outside the box. In series two, I'm expanding outside of my industry a little more and I'm subtitling this series, Turning a Corner. While some of my guests are still people in my industry, there will be others featured who I've met through my more recent conversations about mental health. Everybody I'm interviewing this time around either chose, were encouraged or forced to turn a different corner in their lives. This episode forms the second part of a special trilogy featuring the amazing New York-born Francesca Sorrenti. Francesca and I are also joined on this trilogy by our dear friend Carl Pluka, stylist and editor of Beauty Papers magazine, who I invited to join me to co-host the interview. This special trilogy of interviews, Carl and I have chosen to call The Godmother. Like Mario Puzzo's fictional Sicilian-American family of the Godfather series, the Sorrentis are to fashion what the Corleones were to organise crime. We left episode one with Francesca being asked if she wanted to go and work for Fiorucci. This episode continues her epic story with the answer to that question and a whole lot more. So sit down again, get even more comfortable and enjoy part two. This man comes up to me and said, you know, I'm from Fiorucci. Would you be interested in working with us? And I go, really? (laughs) I was so excited. I said, there's no ifs and buts about this. And in the meantime, while this was going on, I was taking garden statues, cement garden statues, painting them and giving them real hair and putting eyelashes on them. It was a very pop art time, you know, and I was selling them. We'd always pass these garden stores in Naples that have these, like, statues that people, like, would put in their garden. Which and that's kind of the look of Fiorucci, isn't it? That kind of kitchen. Yeah, in my store, I, I, in this gentleman, there was another jean shop in Naples with another American girl called Patty. And we became best friends. She had her shop and she sold jeans. I sold jeans at another part of Naples. She was strictly jeans. I was jeans and fashion and accessories. And once I went to her shop to show her my accessories, this guy from Fiorucci was there. And that's how he knew of me because he was like talking to her about denim. And that's how it started. I said, you know, I can't live in Milan. I have two children. It's out of the question. Uh, Is that where the job the offer was to work in Milan? No. He said, you know, there's no need for you to live in Milan because a lot of our designers live in their hometown. And he explained how Fiorucci worked. A lot of designers, they live in their different cities and you can create your own styles, bring them up, and we'll try to coordinate them with what other designers are doing. Maybe get the right colors and everything. But the the thing was, they had a warehouse that was amazing. It was like an airplane hangar outside of Milan. And in this hangar, they had fabrics. I mean, tons of fabric. Buttons, threads, anything you needed to make clothes. So I would go there... And I was also, again, became friendly with the head designer, Morella Landi, who unfortunately is no longer with us. 
we brainstorm together. I'd go back to Naples, create something, bring it back to her, and she'd have it produced. And if she couldn't have it produced, I would have it produced with people down in Naples. And that's how it was. You know, flare skirts, like gypsy skirts. And I was also very in charge of recycled denim. Because in Naples, we had a place called Resina, which unfortunately, we realized that a lot of the boxes with denim in them were from the Salvation Army, sold to the Neapolitan Mafia. And then we, in turn, would buy these crates. And we, in turn, rented a a huge deposit in Naples and brought in, we had mountains, I mean, literally 25-foot mountains of old denim. And we had so people... So you were being sustainable before anyone even thought about it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know those, the infamous Fiorucci poster of yeah. the backside with these denim, very short, short denim? Yeah. 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 That was part of our production. I mean, production. Cut it, fringe it, send it out. <laughs> you know, um, studded belts. I remember once finding this extremely soft leather. And I remember, I said, why don't we stud it? You know, like put, you know, the biker belts with the two studs. Instead of having it on hard leather, I said, why don't we put it on beautiful soft leather in different colors? So I would do that. And I love doing accessories. I love doing children's clothes, their Fiorucci, Fiorucino line. It was a little bit of everything, and I remember the socks that had uh, toes. Toes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, uh, you know, and I remember in New York, this store called Alexander's was selling out on them. And I said, you know, how much do they cost? Because they had to sign a dollar each, you know, for these striped, fabulous socks that we had no idea what they were in Italy. I, I said, you know, I'll buy them all if you give them to me for 50 cents. So they did, and I had 20,000 hot socks, (laughs) which I brought into, I hope I don't get in trouble for this, which we brought into America, and there used to be these huge suitcases that you could fold in half, you know, you'd like fold them over, and they were all rolled up very, very tight, and I remember we brought them over, back then you didn't have to pay extra for luggage. So I had 10 of these major suitcases. (laughs) And then when we got to Naples, 500,000 lira, which is equivalent of 200 bucks underhand to the guys, and they let us pass. Ah. So those were the good old days. Those were the days you boarded the plane. You got to the airport 10 minutes before it left, and you boarded. So I showed them to Fiorucci, and he loved them, and we sold them for um, $5 a piece. (laughs) that's a good marker I was a freelancer but at the same time I wasn't you know there were these little things and then one day in in Milan I come across this amazing store that has all these old accessories and whatnot and I started making necklaces all these funky looking necklaces and at the time Recycled denim was now no longer the thing. We had to sell off the denim to other countries. And they used to have the huge fairs that, you know, that they have to sell their wares. And we went there to sell the recycled denim. And I snuck my accessories (laughs) to show to somebody 
who would come to the booth. My partner, who was the guy from Fiorucci, he comes in, he leaves, I bring out my accessories, he decides to come back. And, and he's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and I said, well, he goes, you're supposed to be selling denim. And I said, well, I am selling denim. I want to sell my beads. I said, well, you know, he said, put it away. I said, you know, I have to go to the bathroom. So I go to the bathroom, I come back, and he's showing this woman my stuff. <laughs> no. And it turns out that she was from this huge department store in Italy called Rinascente. Right, I know. And then, all of a sudden, Globus from Switzerland comes, Harrods from London comes. At the end of the day, I sold 700,000 lira worth of necklaces. And my first thing at the end was... Who the fuck is gonna string all of those? <laughs> because you know they were buying the gro- gross is one hundred and forty four pieces. I was gonna say, how are you gonna produce all of that shit? Well, I went back to the shop and I said, you know, I have a problem. <laughs> I sold all this stuff and I don't know how to produce this. And he turned around and says, well, we can. I said, why? You have more of what I bought? He goes, girl, we have a whole warehouse. (laughs) He goes, let me call the owner. And her name was Ungo. And she comes out and she says, we sell our costume jewelry, which had nothing to do with these pearls. It was like, again, gold earrings and whatnot and chains. She said, you know what? These clients, because I had all my papers with me she said these are my clients too i said you know you seem like this is really interesting we'll make them for you we'll ship them for you and you pay us in 90 days and i was like holy shit this is the best thing that could have ever happened to me yeah and now here we are i'm pregnant with david and david is born i'm I what year was that? What year was David? David born? was born in the 76. Yeah. And here we are in 77, and I'm on vacation uh, with friends. We had sailed down to Tunisim or gone to Algeria and trying to end up in Morocco. And when I'm in Algeria, I have a bad dream that David wasn't well. And it was during Ramadan. And I, there was no way to call. And we had met some Americans there from the oil industry. We went to their house. They sort of set up for us to call my mother and because my kids were staying with my mom. And it was a lousy connection. And all she said is, come home. And then next day, I'm on a flight back to Naples. And then there's where my life gets screwed. Because I look at David and he goes, mommy... And I realized he was very sick. So I took him to the doctor that afternoon. And the doctor said, you know, your child is very sick. Take him home. Let him die in peace. And I was so freaked out. And that summer, the beginning of the summer, I had met a very wealthy woman who was staying at our villa with us. And she had a lot of connections She said, if you ever need anything for your children, I have a lot of connections up in Genoa. And I remember calling her right then and there. And she said, I'll have a plane pick you up in Naples. She had a Lufthansa flight stop in Naples from Sicily to pick us up. 
And then when we got to Genoa, an ambulance met us. We got to the hospital. The first thing the nurse said is, oh, this little boy has thalassemia. And it freaked me out. Because in Naples, I knew I was a healthy carrier, but they had said that it was impossible for Ricardo to be a healthy carrier because we had two normal children, which both are healthy carriers. It was a shock. And my business went upside down. I just left everything. Uh, I was in a horrible state. Because back then, a transfusion would take a week. And I would have to be in a hospital one week every month. I was in a horrible state. This little boy might die. And, and a year later, at that point, realized that I needed to work. I started a small line of clothing. I was very successful at that point. Because I was not only, I think it had a lot to do, I was American. I worked for Fiorucci. I was always creating very innovative things, the so called Neapolitan in crowd. And I sold all over Naples. And then I, I started to deal with David and come to America, see if there were better treatments and whatnot. And then at one point, my marriage sort of went topsy turvy in 77, but I decided I was going to stay in Italy. It just didn't work out. You know, we were separated, but it wasn't a good situation. I decided to leave in 82 and came back home with the kids. Eight suitcases, $3,000, and three kids. Was it quite a spontaneous decision, Fran, or was it something you planned? Yeah, I, I don't want to really go into it, but basically I snuck out. Right. Okay. Came to America with literally nothing because I didn't want anybody to know that I was leaving. And my kids were also American citizens born abroad, so it was easy in that sense to get through the airlines. At that point, Mario, Venina, and David, were they Italian speaking or? No, oh, only. They didn't know a word of English. That was their first language. Yeah, yeah, and a gay friend of mine that I had met in Capri a year before had said, you know, if you ever have a problem, you can stay with me. Well, little did I know, he only had a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> <laughs> he was flabbergasted. <laughs> he didn't know what he was getting was into. Wasn't one with the bath in the kitchen, was it? <laughs> no, no. I lived in one of those. Yeah, uh, so did I back in the 70s. Uh, back in the 60s, actually. And he was uh, very prominent at the time. He worked for Grey Advertising. He was a casting director. He took me in, my three kids, my eight suitcases. And I, I and then there was no room left. Dog in the car. <laughs> and he was, I guess he was so fucking freaked out. But I didn't care because I was desperate. But then it got worse because I couldn't find a job because I was either too qualified or nobody wanted to give me a job having a sick child. And I had to be in the hospital, you know, twice a month to bring him to get his transfusions. So I did a lot of odd and end jobs. You know, I worked in a diner. I worked at Bloomingdale's. I worked for a decorating company, uh, you know, seven days a week with three children. But the highlight of this is, is in the paper. Back then, you could actually find an apartment in the New York Times. Right. You know, apartments wanted, apartments for rent, apartments for sale. And there was this ad for this apartment in Gramercy Park. I go there, and it's 
the residential hotel that had been refurbished into an apartment Back to your old building. Home. I was going to say, what's, what's it about you and Gramercy Park, Fran? <laughs> so I go to go up the steps and I say, ah, this I'm going to start on the other foot. I've lived there for a year, not, not really a whole year. You know, it was so hard working. And I, the reason I moved there is because found out that it was the best public school system was located there. For my apartment, the school was a block and a half away, but you had to pass the whole block was the police cadet and the police um, station. That was great. And then to play, uh, they could go into Gramercy Park with the key. For me, it was a perfect win-win. I could work seven days a week. And yeah. Mario was the caretaker. You know, it was Mario, take care of, you know, you're the oldest. He was 10. That's how we lived. Then I did so much, little odds and ends. It was a one-bedroom apartment. The kids slept in the bedroom. It was actually one, was a studio split in half. Right. <laughs> and they made... A bedroom, which I had uh, bunk beds, and I slept in the living room, and there was a, the kitchenette was behind the curtain, and a bathroom. I made a lot of friends. My neighbor was Jodie Foster. Oh, right. <laughs> Casual. She, yeah. But she Just was, so happened. She was in high school. I mean, she was in college at the time. Was she at NYU? Uh, no, I think she was at Harvard. And this was her summer. It was summertime. She helped me out one night that I had to go out. I went out often, uh, you know, because I hung out at this bar across the street and everybody in the building to help me out with the kids. If you hear anything, come and get me. <laughs> you know, uh, and there was a bar. It was your neighborhood bar with a lot of kids in it and we all became friends and it was called The Honey Tree. And then uh, I was just always struggling. It was just, you know, working seven days a week is really hard especially with three children as well oh please and then I even worked in a boutique called Riding High you know it it was very difficult because of David so like if I worked at the diner I worked uh, three days a week if I worked somewhere else I would work at night if um, it, it was uh, a lot of uh, juggling and then one day a friend of mine from Gucci called and said they were doing uh, a show at the Red Parrot through this fashion show that I helped put together. I became a stylist. And this photographer came up to me and said, who's the stylist? And I thought he meant hairstylist. <clears throat> and he said, no, the people who dress, who's the person who dressed them? And I said, oh, that's me. And he goes, oh, you know, you could make that a living. I said, why, they pay people to dress people? <laughs> <laughs> I know, bizarre as it may sound. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you can make a lot of money. So I said, oh, my God. So I decided to go to this guy's place, meet up with him. And I met a makeup artist who's unfortunately no longer with us. His name was Craig Gatson, the makeup artist. And Craig was... Um, just starting back then, he said to me, Francesca, you know, the shoot was terrible. And I said, I'm not a stylist. He goes, yes, you are. You just don't know it. Uh, the photographer sucks. So he gave me a name of this woman that I went to see. And she said, you know, let's do some tests. I bullshitted. I said, I worked for Vogue Italia. I worked for Lady <laughs> Magazine. Brilliant. 
But these were magazines in Italy that did carry my accessories. <laughs> so you could show your you could show your name on the page, right? <laughs> and then he introduced me to another photographer, and I met two gentlemen who were just starting. So Kevin had just come up north, Jed Root. What does he get from my memory? With uh, Jed Root. Yes. Yes. yes, of course, yeah. And they're two Southern guys, very cool. He did fabulous makeup, and we did really great pictures. But in the meantime, I bullshitted my way to get clothes, telling these people that I worked for Vogue, Italia, and this, and I'm doing a shoot, and they would lend me their clothes. There was no way to check up, really, you know, back then. And there was still a lot of honesty going on. So they said, when you bring back the stuff as you get it, that's how I want to see it. Or I would buy stuff. I, I got a credit card. I don't know how. So I would go to Bloomingdale's and get clothes and then bring them back. Yeah. People still do that now, don't they? For, for advertising <laughs> jobs, yeah. You started a trend, friend, that's still going. <laughs> she just didn't return them. <laughs> there used to be this famous model called Wanaki, and I had this dress... The pleated stuff. Please, please. Yeah. yeah, it was gold. And I took the whole dress apart and I made a fan and everything. And the photographer got the two top models at the time were Diane DeWitt. I don't know if you know that name. Yeah, yeah. She was best friends with all these top models. So my very first test was with three of the most amazing girls. And she calls me up and she says, at the time I was running out the door because I, I was waitressing at this coffee shop. And she says to me, you know, I have this job that I got because of you and the pictures you did. So I would love you to style it. She said, but it's oh, sadly, loyal too. <laughs> but sadly, it's not paying that much. It's um, $500 a day for uh, a 10-day prep, $800 a day for a five-day shoot. So I'm like, I said, well, it is sort of low. But, you know, I love working with you. Okay, so right then and there, I took off my little black dress, ran to the Greek coffee shop, with two men that were, like, just disgusting. Never tried anything with me, but they were always like, you know, do this, do that. You're not doing this right, you know. But I have to say, I did get my dishes one at a time from them. (laughs) And my silverware. And my kids had dinner there every night. So, but it was always thrown up at me, you know. Oh, and my toilet paper. (laughs) I took my little black dress and I threw it in his face and I said, you know what? Fuck you. I said, you are so degrading to women. This is terrible. I said, I'm sick and tired of you, you know, just putting me down all the time. You know, to have someone behind you going faster, faster, move, move. You know, it was that kind of vibe. And that was for 50 bucks a tip a night, which was absolutely nothing at the time. Uh, But again... My kids could eat there. They could come in and grab whatever they wanted. It was right across the street from the school. So I had everything was (laughs) planned out. And that was the beginning. Uh, Right after that, I got more and more and more work. And I remember working with Paulina for the cover of Cosmo Beauty. 
you know, and then we became good friends. I was a contributing editor for a gay nightlife magazine called (laughs) 212 with my best friend who's no longer with us. It was an amazing time for me, you know, Mm. and I was able to move out of this, of there into a better apartment. Uh, And my loft (laughs) uh, next door to my, you remember my loft? You've been there. Uh, next yes. door in the church building, that was my apartment. Then I literally got all these jobs, and it was just amazing. And at the time, I uh, I did I worked for Macy's, doing their catalogs. And at the time, Stephen Mizell worked for Macy's. Mm. Wow! As a stylist? No, he was a creative director, an art director oh. there. Okay. And I had been working with them a week, and he left because he started taking those amazing pictures. Um, I don't know if you remember those amazing shots where there was the seamless, and it looked like someone was running up them. Mm, wow. He did these shots where it was shot on an angle. That was the beginning of you know my mm. career as a stylist, and I did extremely well. And, and then magazines, and the first magazine to be successful and hire stylists was Self Magazine, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. And Jay Purvis, who's no longer with us, was a creative director there. And then they created GQ. And I got a call to go to Australia with uh, Bruce Weber, but I couldn't do it uh, because I couldn't go to Australia for 15 days with three kids. (laughs) So that was the beginning of these magazines that were starting. And then I I remember doing a shoot for this children's wear company. And the guy said, you know, you've changed my company around. Uh, We would love for you to open up our ad agency. And I said, I I know absolutely nothing about advertising. He goes, that's what you think. And I learned everything within a month's time, literally. And by then I had met Steve, my partner, Steve, of 35 years now. And I met him at Area, which was a club. He would help me out with the, uh, you know, styling. When uh, I remember once my assistant got sick and he was a PA for film company. And he said, you know, I'll come and help you out. And then I had this brilliant idea. You know what? Let's start this company, me and you together. And we did. And he became, back then there was direct mail. We rented the loft next door to where I lived. We started styling and doing everything and layouts and whatnot for this company. One day we needed these pictures and Steve picked up a camera. He studied photography and I said, well, these are great. So he started shooting children's wear and I was styling all the shoots and running the company and doing layouts. It was like 24-7 workaholic. But there were no computers, so at 6 o'clock we were done. Yeah, you were done. (laughs) You know, Mario and Vanina were models at the time, and so was David occasionally. So we were this happy fashionista family (laughs) for years. And then... um, And at what point did you pick up a camera? Well, we had the recession of 89 hit. And at that point, the the children's wear, well, I worked for this children's wear company called Gitano, but I also helped create the children's play stores, which is a big, huge thing in America. Uh, There's like uh, 500 stores at the time and helped design everything with it. 
I got laid off. He said, it's best you leave Gitano because there were legal issues with the all the owners of that company. Then uh, they couldn't sustain me any longer at the children's place because the recession was astronomical. So was my salary. So it would be best to let me go and have my assistant run the company. <laughs> and then Mario at the time was a model. He was in London. That's when I met him. Is that when he did the Levi's ad? Yes. He did the Levi's ad. I'll never forget. He called me from, because you know he was staying with Mark LeBond. He left New York. He was 19 at the time, 18, 19. And there's still that mother-son connection, you know, and I was worried. And, you know, there were no cell phones. So I said, as soon as you get there, call me. He calls me from Mark's house and he goes, Ma, you're never going to believe this. He said, I got on the bus and there's these girls looking at me from school. They were school girls and they were laughing and they were going, that's Mario Sorrenti. <laughs> and they didn't approach him. But when he got off the bus, they followed him and he had to run to the house <laughs> and get in with the girls down by the window yelling, Mario, Mario. <laughs> that was me and Carl. Yeah. <laughs> No, I remember seeing Mario because I knew who he was and I saw him and there was this very famous club we used to go to on Wardour Street. Mm -hmm. What was it called? The Wag. Yes. And there was was a a pool table and Mario was playing pool and I was too embarrassed to say hi. And this gorgeous skinny little girl was sort of laughing and giggling and smoking and that was Kate. Oh my God. And that was before anyone knew who she was. Yeah, and I remember him calling me from another place and I said, where are you staying? I think he was staying at Jess Hallett's place at the time. Right. Yeah. And I said, well, where are you staying? Does she have a room? He goes, no, me and Kate are sleeping on the couch. <laughs> and I'm like, a couple of weeks after, you know, Mario was an extremely successful model. You know, he well, was the, knew who he was. He was the it boy. You know, he worked with every, you know, he worked with Bruce. He worked with Michelle Kump. He worked with Peter Lindbergh. I mean, you name it. And it's funny because when he was 18, he came to me and he said, Ma, you know, if I get one modeling job a month, I could, I'll be fine. I'll make $1,500. Because he was helping me with advertising company, like doing graffiti t-shirts and whatnot. And I said, Mario, you're too short. And I said, you know, it's not going to happen. He goes, Ma, please, please. So at the time, I was really, you know, I had been a stylist. Here I was an ad agency. So I knew everybody. And there was this agency called Men. And I remember, I can't remember the name of who ran it. And I call her up and I said, you know, do me a favor. Could you please see my son? I said, you know, I under, he's short. I know it's not going to happen. He got there, came back. She calls me up. She goes, oh my God, he's fabulous. I go, really? I knew agencies, you know, I said, okay, they're going to take them on and it's not going to happen. And it happened. And I was wrong. Well, that was a time when people were, people that were different were starting to become the stars. Yeah. Right. I mean, Kate was not model high either. Yes. She was starting in, in London uh, yeah. And then she met Mario, and then I got a call once. Mario says, Ma, I have my girlfriend. Could we come and stay with you? And at the time, I I had a penthouse with a lot of rooms. 
So uh, on East 16th Street, across the street from the studio. And I said, uh, yeah, sure. So they came to stay with me. And there's this little girl, you know, and she's so sweet. The first night they're with us, I remember uh, after dinner, I said, Mario, do the dishes. And he goes, Ma. I said, you know, I don't care who you are. And him and Kate, I don't think Kate ever washed a dish. (laughs) And and then when they went to bed, she, I heard her say, oh my God, Mario, your mom has Ralph Lauren sheets. I can't believe it. She was so cute. I loved her. I loved her. I still love her. And she was, she was a little bird. That's what she reminded me of. And her agency, I remember at the time, was not very welcoming to her because they took her because of Mario. And one day she came home crying and I called up the agency. I said, well, you know, he was a good friend of mine. And I said, you don't do that shit. She's just a kid. And I remember Mario, he got to do a picture for Interview Magazine and uh, he wanted to use Kate. And at the time, Joe McKenna was knew Mario and was prepping the shoot. And he said, no, we're not using your girlfriend. And he said, well, then I'm not doing it. So he used Kate and Joe fell in love with her. And this is the true story. Uh, He fell in love with her and then he introduced her to Bruce. And that was the beginning of everything. And then... She was doing, you know, back then you were doing everything. You were doing Cosmo, you were doing Red Book, you were doing the New York Times ads. Calvin got a hold of her, and he was signing autographs, I don't know, at Bloomingdale's, and wanted Kate to stand next to him. And I said to Mario, Kate's at Bloomingdale's, why don't we go and pick her up and surprise her? We'll get online. So we get online, and we get up to there and Calvin looks up at Mario. Kate says, this is my boyfriend. Somehow, what do you do? What don't you do? I'm a photographer. Oh, let me see your work. And that was the beginning of their career together, shooting. Was it Obsession? Obsession, yes. Yeah, beautiful the beginning. film. Yeah. Yes. And they went off to an island in the uh, one of the Caribbean islands yeah. near Ooh. Tortola. And that was the beginning of it all. They became America's sweethearts, you know. Yeah. Uh, they still use those pictures yes, now. Yes, they do. They even did a book. Yeah. And in the meantime, Mario says to me, Ma, pick up a camera. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, here, you know, in your lifetime, a lot of people don't understand because a lot of people in the business are not my age <laughs> and mm-hmm. they don't have three children. So the ups and downs running away from home, getting married to an Italian, struggling in America, you know, and then there are these recessions that happen in the middle of it all. You know, the recession of 79, the recession of 89. Me and Steve were together, but we're both out of work and, you know, living off whatever we saved. And then Mario said, Ma, pick up a camera. You're always telling everybody what to do. You might as well do it yourself. (laughs) Do do what I'm telling you for a change. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, you know, you just don't pick up a camera. I'm sorry. So I said, either he goes, you can get assistance and do it. No, 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 no. Either I know what I'm doing or I don't do it. He said, my, it's like, it's like cooking pasta. He goes, you 
turn the knob, take the shot, and if it doesn't look good, turn the knob to another setting, <laughs> just like salt. And then, but make sure your light is in the right position. Look at the face. Make sure you see the light. You know, make sure you know where the light is hitting that person. You don't want raccoon eyes. You don't want shadows. You know, you want to move things around. And I remember doing it by myself with the help of Steve, you know, explaining. I would have him explain it to me, but then I'd have him get out of the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now bugger off. And yeah, it. and I liked what I did. It became a most incredible feeling that I had ever had. I mean, you know, I hate to say this and I hate to be pretentious, but everything I ever did on a creative level, always came very easy to me. Mm. Even on a marketing level, even selling, I could really sell the Brooklyn Bridge if I wanted to. You need this done, I'll do it. You need that done, I'll do it. But photography was different. Photography was something I truly had to learn. And it was truly, it wasn't like next, it was like, I, I love this. I love fashion photography. And a lot of people, you know, they poo-poo fashion photography. But, I mean, fashion is the essence of how we live on a day-to-day level. Fashion, I mean... It's a barometer, a social barometer. Yes, you know, Marie Antoinette, the cavemen. You know, they wore these amazing furs. (laughs) And it just went on, you know, even religious garb. I mean, I remember being in elementary school. I went to Catholic school. They had this book that was this thick of all the different costumes that nuns could wear according to what. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to be... Nun fashion. Nun fashion. I wanted to be a Dominican nun because <laughs> they had this thing that looked like the flying nun, you know, this hat <laughs> But I, I was thinking, I've always, I've always known you as a photographer, Fran, but I was just thinking then, it's, it's a shame that you came to photography later because imagine all those pictures you could have taken of all those amazing times in your, like the early days of New York or... The thing is, cameras weren't really that accessible. You have to remember, I ran away from home, so I didn't have family money. (laughs) The logistics of fashion, of photography, was you bought this little camera or you bought a better one, and then you had it developed, you know, at your local five and dime store. I didn't know, not know anything because I didn't study photography. I went to FIT and I studied fashion, and then... uh, Two months into being in FIT my first year, I got a job working in fashion, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I don't need to be at FIT. Uh, so I left school. So everything, my, my intuition always helped me. Back then, photography wasn't that accessible to me, and I still wasn't in that mode. I was in the mode of fashion. I go way back. I can tell you my clothes, my shoes. When I was four years old, I have this vision. I have a passion for plaid. And I I remember being a baby. Maybe I was two. I knew I didn't walk. I was sitting. The reason I remember it is because I fell off the couch. And I had a plaid skirt on, a little plaid skirt. 
and no. little red shoes. And that is my first memory of fashion. Of fashion. <laughs> you know, and I remember then in being in nursery school, being four or five years old, and I remember my birthday running to my little closet to see my birthday dress. And my biggest passion is when my mother would punish me and lock me in her walk-in closet. And I would get on a shoebox and open the light and then try everything on in the closet. Yeah. You know, my mother was very fashionable. And I remember her hats and her alligator pumps and, you know, uh, and her fox trims. And, you know, I put everything on. I remember once she decided to let me out of the closet and she found me totally like wearing scarves and fox and a hat. And she started <laughs> to laugh because I have uh, learning disabilities. You know, I, I have attention deficit. So for me, you know, and I have a problem with mathematics, a severe problem. It takes me forever to realize numbers. And so for me, the camera was all about numbers and tech. Yeah, so you just avoided it. <laughs> so I just avoided it. Then when I realized that I knew what I was doing, you know, and that it was easy, and also back then, you know, you had a Polaroid. You could also, and then I understood the Polaroid. If the Polaroid was perfect, I knew that I had to either go up or down in film mm -hmm. because the Polaroid, you know, wasn't going to give me what I needed on film. Because yeah. I did start off on film. And then abruptly, six months later, I got freaked out because negative film came into the picture. Uh, and then when negative film came in, I, I got used to it and I knew what I was doing. And at two years into my career, because at yeah. then Mar David was shooting. Was say, so who encouraged then Vanina and David to take pictures? Was that you or was that just something they wanted to do on their own? Mario was shooting and David had the bug and he wanted a camera. So his brother gave him a camera. He loved it. It was just... You know, it's funny how you take for granted your last child, you know, because he was the one who was brought up in everything. He was brought up in my fashion passion. He was brought up Steve shooting photography. He was because he was always in the house. You know, yeah. Mario at one point at 18 was out. Vanina was a stylist, so she had a great sense of style and so he had all these elements. So it just came, and I forgot to say one thing, both both Mario and David were um, knew how to paint. They were artists. They are artists. It just came to him naturally, and he had a camera. All of a sudden, he had a camera, and that was it. Vanina, no. Vanina was a stylist, and after and David passed, she had her camera, and she had taken some pictures. She had gone to the Philippines and took some really beautiful pictures. And I said, Vanina, you know, you should think about photography. And she was, no, Ma, I'm not doing this. And at the time, there was a magazine called Surface. Yeah, and I was friends with Ryan. And he said to me, Francesca, if do you know any photographers who don't have published work? And I said, well, you know, there's Vanina who has 
some pictures that are truly beautiful. And I said, you know, I'm going to send them to you, but please do not consider them because she's my daughter. Mm. You know, I don't want, I don't, yeah. I don't want this to happen. He goes, no, I mean, I'll tell you. And he was like that. Mm. You know, if he didn't like something, he would come out and say it. And he went, oh my God, what happened? Your family got another photographer? (laughs) (laughs) That's when it started for her. That's um, her passion for photography. But hers is more about art. She loves the artistic sense of how the picture could look if it were a painting. Mine was, how can I make clothes in their perfect setting? And Mari is just a downright fucking genius <laughs> he's just yeah. open to everything you know he knows who he's working for he sticks to what he feels he should do yeah. and I'm the type that because it's fashion I'd like to understand the designer what they want to project but I have never ever gone on a shoot without seeing clothes knowing mm. who the model is because of that stylist in me. And the one or two times that I left it up to the client, fuck up. And I was very lucky because I had a lot of people who trusted me. You know, I had Interview Magazine. Uh, David Seidner used to always do the um, the couture issues. Yes. And then one day... I remember David. Yeah, and then I one used day... I with him. Yes, and then one <laughs> day... Yes, one day Ingrid Chishi called me and said... I want you to do the couture. She paid for my trip, everything. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I don't know if you remember, I did the whole thing down in the subway system. Yes. Actually, I remember those pictures. And I remember being told that I could not take Chanel into the subway. (laughs) We were in Place de la Concorde and there was a cafe there. And I said, okay, I'm doing a cafe shoot. So we go into the cafe, I dress up, Jody, Jody Kit, run out, and I had the most amazing hair person, and we did these hairstyles where it looked like the hair was blowing. So Jody and I run into the train station, and we go on the escalator, and I'm taking all these crazy pictures, and then we run back up, and no, I'm not going to shoot this picture. And the same went for Yves Saint Laurent. Jody Kidd was in a train holding on to the rail with this most beautiful outfit on, which they actually showed at the Louvre for a moment at the Yves Saint Laurent. Uh, they did a tribute. Oh, really? yeah, yeah, which was cool. I love to take things out of context, but at the same time have them blend in, which sometimes is very difficult. Today, I see a lot of that going on, but it doesn't seem to blend in. Do you know what I mean? It was just... Yeah, it's more jarring. Yeah, I mean, it looked like Jody was going, really in the train, going somewhere with that dress on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with that outfit. Yeah. I wanted someone to say, that's a great picture. Yes. And when I would get that, I didn't... I hated when I hear heard, oh, great hair, great dress, great location. Yeah. No. And when someone would say a great picture... I would be ecstatic. A lot of people don't understand why I I put down my camera. End of part two. 
Why did Francesca put her camera down? If you're listening to this as the episodes are released, the third and final part will be available in one week's time. Otherwise, go straight to the next episode on your podcast platform. Thank you for listening to In Bed with Neil Moody with my marvellous guest, Francesca Sorrenti. You can follow Francesca on her Instagram, which is at Francesca Sorrenti underscore. Sorrenti spelt with two R's and one N. The David Sorrenti book is called Argue SKE, 1994 to 1997 and is published by Idea Books with up and coming exhibition dates to be announced. The documentary film about David's life is titled See No Evil and is available on iTunes, Amazon Prime, Google Play and Vimeo. If you want to get in bed with me again and another of my guests then you can subscribe to my podcast on all the regular platforms to ensure that you don't miss an episode. There are other episodes, including all of Series 1, already available to listen to straight away. Thanks for listening.